Do you mind if I smoke? It won't affect the test. All right, I'm going to ask you a series of questions. Just relax and answer them as simply as you can. You've got a little boy. He shows you his butterfly collection, including the killing jar. I'd take him to the doctor. You're listening to a podcast. Suddenly, you realize there's a wasp crawling on your arm. Which podcast? It doesn't matter. Just answer the questions, please. Which podcast? Um, now playing the movie review podcast hosted by Stuart, Jacob, and Brock. The movie series being reviewed is the Philip K. Dick series with such classic films as Blade Runner, Total Recall, and Minority Report. I go to nowplayingpodcast.com every Friday to download a new episode of the series. You hear a warning that these podcasts will be full of spoilers. I hit pause, watch the movie, and then listen to the podcast. You're reading a magazine. You come across a full-page photo of a naked woman. Shh, with the questions. The podcast is starting. Today we're talking about Imposter, starring Gary Sinise, Madeline Stowe, Vincent D'Onofrio, McKay Pfeiffer, and directed by Gary Fletter. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in L.A. Knock, knock. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay, I'll bite. Who's there? Not Jacob. (laughs) Actually, it is Jacob. And I guess now I'll have to explain that awful joke that they used twice in this Awful, awful movie. Can you explain it? I, I don't get it. No, I don't. It's, <laughs> it's stupid. <laughs> this is a movie all about people that aren't who they actually are, so saying knock, knock, not someone, I guess, is funny. So here we are with this imposter movie, which is quite an interesting movie if you think about it just for a second, because I don't know about you two, but I've never heard of this movie before we even had this on the list to do for this podcast series. I was really excited to see this movie when it was going to be called Light Years, but that is an entirely different project that will never be seen. I can talk a little bit about what Light Years was as a concept. Miramax was an up-and-coming company in the 1990s. They had just won some Oscars. They had all the hip directors working for them. So they wanted to create anthology movies. They created one with Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez and a few others called Four Rooms. And then they had an idea about taking famous science fiction authors taking short stories of theirs and pairing it with hot directors and then having an anthology of science fiction stories called Light Years. And one of these episodes was going to be Imposter. It was one of three stories to be told in a complete anthology movie, but it was not meant to be a standalone movie. And the reason why you haven't heard of it was it was never funded to be what it has ended up becoming, which is a full-length 90-minute feature. So kind of like the Twilight Zone, the movie they did in the early 80s. Sure, if you can remember that one or Tales from the Dark Side. If you want to remember it. (laughs) Yeah, you know, those things are always hit and miss. I always feel like whenever they do those, I might enjoy a few, but it's very rare that I feel like, wow, that was an entirely great experience. Still, it did sound like it would have been an interesting project. Uh, One other movie did get made out of it. It was called Mimic. I never did see it. Guillermo del Toro directed it, and it had to do with bugs that were mutants under New York and Mira Savino. I don't know if you guys know that movie either, but it did get a wider release and is is available on DVD. And it was going to be one of the chapters. Kevin Smith was going to be involved. He was going to do a a goof on an alien that got married to a human. 
that didn't really see the light of day. They, they did end up getting made as a short film, but there's no release for short films. What do you do with a 30-minute movie? You put it in a film festival, and it's never seen again. And then Brian Singer, the director of Usual Suspects, and would go on to make the X-Men first couple of movies, he was going to do Isaac Asimov. That one never even got cast. So it could have been an interesting project, but probably not great. And so what they were left with when the whole deal fell apart was 40 minutes of imposter that they decided to say, hey, let's make a feature out of this rather than throw it into the trash. On the DVD version that I saw, director's cut of Imposter, it had the 90-minute version of the movie, which we watched for this podcast, but they also had the 40-minute version. So, 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 Brock, is the director's cut actually shorter in this case? <laughs> usually, usually you add like twice as much time to a movie with the director's cut. So, so are we talking about a 90-minute feature and a 40-minute director's cut? Uh, no, uh, I don't know why it's called the director's cut at all. Because yeah, you're absolutely right. In this case, the movie was expanded to double its length anyway. So what are you what are you going to add for a director's cut? They added on the original 40 minute movie as an extra. After I watched the full movie for the podcast and after I read the short story, I decided to watch the 40 minute version to see what was added and what was originally there from the 40 minute version. Well, let's I guess say what's in the original version. And then we'll we'll look at those differences. But I do want to say I did I saw the PG thirteen version. I didn't see the director's cut. I actually TiVo'd this, and I think all the difference really is between the director's cut and the version I saw was you got more blood. And that's possible. It wasn't extremely bloody anyway. But there's also some graphic scenes of Gary Sinise and Madeline Stowe making out, ma- making love. I mean, it wasn't graphic to the point of Skinamax, but it was just like. This is going on forever. It just it, it gets to the point where you make love scenes. We get the point. They're making love. Can we move on? Unless you're watching something <laughs> with the intent purpose of watching that, you don't really want to see that in your science fiction movie for too long. Look, there's there's going to be some 13-year-old boys where they're going to really enjoy that portion of the film. At, at 13, it's hard to come by. Well, now with the internet these days. Yeah, I, I agree. It was, would have been more true 20 years ago. If these I days. was 13, I would have appreciated that, that, those sex scenes. It was mostly close-ups of them kissing, too, so it was kind of like, okay, is this technique lessons? Okay. Anyway, why don't we start off with a plot summary. So the year is 2079, and the Earth has been attacked by an alien race, and the surviving humans... And their cities that survived are all protected by these domes to ward off future alien nuclear weapons and attacks. And government secret weapon designer Spencer Olam, who is Gary Sinise, is designing a super weapon to help end this conflict once and for all. Spencer and his doctor wife, played by Madeline Stowe, just returned from a camping vacation in the nearby Sutton Woods which, as, we, as the movie opens, we learn, has been burning for weeks now, and no one seems to know what started that fire. So on the way to work one day, with his friend played by Tony Shalhoub, Spencer is arrested by Major Hathaway, who's played by Vincent D'Onofrio, who suspects that Spencer is a replicant. Again? Uh, yes, again, folks. A replicant in a Philip K. Dick story, what are the chances? And this replicant is supposedly created by the hostile alien race, who wants to take over the Earth. So during Spencer's interrogation, Hathaway tells us that the replicants, they're perfect clones of the human they are meant to look like, and they have all of the human's memories downloaded into them, and to the point where they don't even know themselves that they're replicants. They think they're actually the original human. Hence your knock-knock jokes. (laughs) And that's where the knock-knock jokes tie in. And inside this robot, inside the heart 
is a nuclear bomb which is dormant until something sets it off, which is that very specific. No one knows exactly what will set it off, but something will. It's kind of like a Care Bear, except it kills you. (laughs) (laughs) A very deadly Care Bear stare. (laughs) Since Spencer is meeting the Chancellor of the Earth because of his new weapon in some kind of function that evening, Hathaway thinks that Spencer is a replicant based on the information he has, everything fits, etc. So Spencer tries to convince Hathaway that he's not a replicant, but he realizes that's futile, and he manages to escape... And in his escape, he kills his friend, Tony Shalhoub. So after he escapes, he calls his wife, and he realizes that they already got to her. So he has to figure out a way to prove he is not a replicant. And stall until we can get to the real ending of the movie. (laughs) Yeah, here's where the movie takes a bit of a tangent. Spencer wants to break into the hospital his wife works in to get himself a full body scan to show that he has no bomb inside him. So the, the middle half of this movie is Spencer on the run from everyone who's trying to get him, trying to break into the hospital to get this full body scan. And to do this, he solicits the help of a young man named Kale, who was played by McKay Pfeiffer. And Kale is part of, this, part of the society that's kind of poor and kind of ignored by the government. All the money and all the resources are going to the upper echelon of society. Kale is part of the ignored part of the society. And Spencer, thinking that he can bribe this guy to helping him, says... We break into the hospital. You can take all the drugs we find there to sell to your people so you can make money, and everything should be good. Everybody wins. So that's the plan. Kale helps Spencer break into the hospital, and that whole thing takes about 45 minutes of the movie. They're breaking into the hospital, running around the hospital, trying to get this scan done. Which they don't accomplish. Yeah, there's ultimately pointless tangent with Spencer and Kale running around the hospital and whatnot. And at the uh, make a long story short, this scanner plan ends up not working out. When they finally get to the pharmacy, Spencer notices that Kale is taking drugs to help people medically in this poor community, not the kind of drugs you can take recreationally. Spencer realizes he's misjudged this young man, and they part ways. So since Spencer has this epiphany that he figures out that the fire in Sutton Woods was started by the crashing spaceship of the replicant alien that was sent to replace him. He figures this out magically, and he believes if he can find this spaceship and find the replicant that never got to him in the first place, he can prove to Hathaway and his wife that he isn't the replicant. He can show them the replicant's body. So he has his wife meet him at the forest, and they find the spaceship. Just as Hathaway and the cops track him there, and Hathaway then starts to warn him, don't look in the spaceship, you're not going to like what you see. We have additional information we didn't have before. Don't look in the spaceship. Spencer opens the cockpit anyway, and instead of seeing a replicant that looks like him, he sees the actual body of his murdered wife. So the person who was standing next to him is actually his wife. It's a replicant of his wife, and then Hathaway shoots the replicant wife right there in cold blood because if she doesn't, he feels her bomb is going to go off. And then a cop opens the other section of the cockpit and reveals Spencer's dead body. Spencer realizes he too is a replicant, and he realizes that he and his wife were actually murdered on the camping trip and replaced with the replicants. And when he has his realization, his eyes turn black, and the bomb within him explodes, killing Hathaway, the cops, leveling the forest. The earth does not come crashing down because the chancellor wasn't killed, but the bomb does go off in a relatively secluded place. 
I'm sorry, I dozed off there, Brock. <laughs> but don't feel bad because I dozed off while watching this movie too. I sat down with my wife to watch this because she loves Gary Sinise. She's like, "Oh, Gary, Sin- I'll watch this. I love Gary Sinise." And she was snoozing by 20 minutes. She was out cold. That, that sounds about right. <laughs> And, you know, I like Gary Sinise, too. I think he's a good character actor. I think whenever he turns up, he does his thing. He's he's not dissimilar from Peter Weller in that he's kind of just got this weird, almost reptilian quality. You could believe the guy is a robot. I mean, there's some question <laughs> when you see him. He has a strange way of emoting. He sort of plays things down to the point where you're like, is there blood flowing in your veins? So I, I think if you're going to cast a movie where you're questioning whether the lead character is a robot or not, th- that's more believable having Gary Sinise than Harrison Ford. Okay, but it still needed a more dynamic actor in the lead. I mean, good for Gary for, I think he produced this, good for him for being part of this project and wanting to make this project work. The cast they got for this seemed to be well, game. You know, they had a pretty good cast. Well, what else did they have to do? It looks like everyone was on break from their TV show. I mean, the whole <laughs> cast, the whole cast, I'm serious. Every one of them is on the CSI or uh, Law and Order or something. They're all doing these Wings. criminals. Uh, yeah, it's like this was filmed on break from all their TV shows in the commissary of like, hey, I want to be in the movies. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Agreed. But I just don't find Gary Sinise as a leading man in a movie something I need to see. Television, it works out perfectly for me. And of course, who doesn't love Lieutenant Dan? You know, he was great in that Apollo 13. He was great as, as Mattingly, but... Yeah, he works better as a supporting actor. Yeah, he, no, yeah, yeah. As a lead, you know, yeah, I, lo- I, I enjoyed watching him uh, naked dancing in the shower to John Lee Hooker, but... <laughs> <laughs> so wh- why don't we go through this? I mean, I don't think I'm spoiling anything. I think we can all agree this movie is very unsatisfying in this feature-length cut. I didn't see the 40-minute version. I did read the story, and so it's very clear to me where the movie gets its own ideas and goes off in its own direction from what Dick intended. The original story, you can hear my review of Imposter, the 15-page Dick story (laughs) from 1953 at Books and Nachos, but to quickly sum it up, it seemed to me it was mostly about the whole Red Scare, the whole idea that communists were invading and they looked like everyone else, but in their heart there was a bomb that could annihilate the world. And it's actually got a little bit of humor to it, and it's kind of lighthearted in how paranoid and bizarre it gets as Spencer Olam realizes what's happening to him and that no one can believe or understand what he knows to be true, that he's human. I think that's all a very interesting concept, and I would have liked to have seen a movie that had that tone and played with those ideas. But, you know, this is not the first time that we've seen a Philip K. Dick movie with those themes being explored. And so with the communism scare angle that the story had, I could have used a little bit more of that here because the way it was explored before, it didn't have those kind of themes involved. Let's look at when this was made, too. They really missed the boat. If they had waited a couple years and, and made it, they could have tapped into all of what we've been dealing with in the post-9-11 era of sleeper cells and rendition and who's really a patriot, all these ideas we hear in the media all the time. This movie would love to play into them, but it was made right before 9-11, and really it has no political agenda at all. It's really almost about nothing. And and I think that's what hurts it is I think, again, great sci-fi, it somehow taps into the cultural consciousness. You know, I think of Star Trek. Yeah, it's set in the future, but like that original television show, 
It's all about race relations like in the 60s when the civil rights movement's going on. That's what gave it its power. It, you know, it had the first interracial kiss on TV. And so for sci-fi to get involved with all the outer limits kind of twist and the special effects, I think you really lose the power of sci-fi. I think science fiction's a great way to comment on what's going on now in kind of a distance way so you're a little bit more objective. You're not so tied to it. And so here was a great opportunity to tap into all these fears of the post-9-11 world. And like you said, Stuart, I think it came out too soon. If it would have waited a couple of years, it could have really picked up on some of those themes and made a stronger movie. These guys don't have a time machine. They don't have a crystal ball to know that they should wait until a terrorist attack happens on U.S. soil. uh, Of course they wouldn't have known that, but what was happening in 1999-2000 to make this story relevant? Why would you even try? If, okay. you weren't, if, the, if there weren't echoes of that happening in the real world, you leave it alone. I mean, I'd, I would imagine that people would still be screaming about whether, you know, Britain should be still occupying India or women's suffrage or do they have the right to vote. I mean, these moments have their time, they're relevant, and then it passes. And this is a story that was written in 1953. It meant something in 1953 to talk about people being accused of being communist. Now, in 1999-2000, when we, they were getting ready to go with this movie, it didn't have any meaning. And reading the story, it's a really good story. So I can understand why people would want to make this into a movie because the story is so much fun to read. But I hear your point. And the other thing about the story that makes it to its advantage is it's really lean. It gets in and it gets out, and there's not any extraneous details. Whereas Imposter, the feature movie, it would be difficult for me to talk about what is meaningful from what is junk here. I mean, there is so much to talk about that is not followed through. I mean, let's just start with the alien invaders. We're told they're from Alpha Centauri, which I thought was a star. Wasn't it awesome when they showed the aliens in this movie? (laughs) That must have been in the director's cut because we don't ever see or know anything about Alpha Centauri or why they wanted to destroy us. We're told that there is a chancellor who is running a global world to protect us from the Alpha Centaurians. I'm fine with that. Somebody protect me from the killer aliens. And yet they want to create the conflict that there's all these people that don't like the chancellor. Well, all I got to say is when alien invaders from Alpha Centauri are sending nuclear weapons and blowing up major cities, you got to go with whoever's in power, whether you like their individual politics or not. I mean, there's no way that I can care about what's going to happen to the chancellor and the underclass people that don't feel supported by them when they've got this larger threat in another world invading. This movie gets confused because you, you get this opening scene. The first thing to go was the sky, you know, cause talking about those shields that are put over cities, even though you could still see out of them and see the sky. But whatever. At first, it seems they're blaming the aliens, but then they, they get into that one world uh, global government like it's a bad thing and, and it starts to turn on itself. I, I don't know if these are supposed to be subtle clues that – Gary Sinise's character is really a traitor, but it, it just seems like it's it's trying to tap into all these different sci-fi dystopia ideas, but doesn't actually want to solidify anything and run with it. I don't know how Gary Sinise's character, Spencer, could be hired for a top-secret, high-level 
security job of building a mega bomb and then complain that his boss is a warmonger. You know, like <laughs> that he spends the first half of the movie just talking about how this chancellor's awful and she's just baiting the Alpha Centaurians and it's just going to be terrible. And then, like, I got to go to work and he walks in and there's a giant nuclear device that he's going to send into space to blow up Alpha Centauri. And I'm like, how does this click together for you? How do you rationalize these two different parts of yourself? He has a debate with his wife at the beginning of the movie after the, the movie opens up with all that explanation. And then they have him in the shower singing to Johnny Lee Hooker after making love to his wife. And she's watching the TV. And then they turn the news on for whatever reason. And they talk about the fire in the woods. They, they lay it down there. But they also lay down this whole thing about the chancellor and the two of them have a bit of a political debate right there in the bedroom but they're not debating because she agrees with them too i mean there's no debate they're both like yeah she's horrible but she's complaining about something about the medical care or how many people aren't being supported in their needs is that the foundation for mckay pfeiffer's people and stuff like that later on i can only presume because yes when we finally get around to meeting the underclass all the minority people and their beef seems to be that the dome didn't go fast enough around their neighborhood that whitey got protected first however true that may be i i don't feel like that's where our story is if we're battling aliens from space i just can't I can't care about smaller issues about that. That's just not going to ring true to me. I mean, this movie, it could have done some twists and turns. It could have been the whole war was fake, so they could push this underclass out of society, get rid of them, get rid of these economic burdens. But again, this film doesn't want to actually explore any deep themes. It, It wants to get to a big chase. Well, it's funny you should say that, because after we leave this and he goes to work and he gets picked up by Vincent D'Onofrio and is accused of the replicant, it becomes quickly apparent to me this movie is about this guy is being accused of being a robot that's sent down from aliens. Then the movie goes into this big chase sequence. It ceases to really be about him being a robot, and it ceases to be about anything to do with aliens. It's just a big old excuse for them to do all these running scenes and all this other stuff. It's like a completely separate movie. If he ran somewhere and learned something about himself, we're with it. That's a good chase movie. That's what you want. Run, run, run. Oh, well, let me look at my medical records. Well, my heart looks fine. Okay, run, run, run. Let me meet a guy, and he can tell me about what other replicants have been like when they've come down. If they were telling us that kind of detail, we're building, we're unraveling a mystery. This movie is just literally on the treadmill, wasting time until they can count down and get to the original movie ending that they had for the 40-minute short they already shot. There's a point in this film where they run one direction for like 10 minutes, and they're like, we just spotted him in the other direction, and they literally just turn around and run the other way where they just were. Maybe they only have one set. Yeah, it It, was just pointless running around. There nothing to make you care about this chase that was going on. And yet, I must say that I did like the whole idea of Spencer feeling he had to protect himself, even though he couldn't know for sure whether he wasn't the enemy. I think that's a good conflict. But the thing is, though, he didn't even suspect for a second he may be a replicant. 
Not for a moment. So for me, it wasn't about him trying to figure out his identity. It was for him proving to them that he's not a replicant. It seems like in all these Dick movies, they never actually suspect it. Harrison Ford never suspects it until the end. Arnold Schwarzenegger never thinks that he's crazy in the chair. Well, maybe a little bit. But And Hendrickson never thinks that he's actually a screamer. It's, it's almost a foregone conclusion that, oh, I know myself. I must be human. But we're an audience member watching them. In a page, there's room for doubt because you're inside their head. You're reading their thoughts. But in the movie, you're watching them. There's always a suspicion. And that's the problem with this chase movie. It's a chase movie, but he's never picking up clues on anything. You're never seeing him. He runs and he reads this journal and he finds some inconsistency with the memory he has or something. There's no desire for him to find out who he really is just to prove that he's not what he's been told. Now, we're going to work with Gary Sinise, and he runs into his friend Nelson, who's played by Tony Shalhoub. Tony Shalhoub, during the escape of Gary Sinise, after he gets interrogated, and we all learn about this replicant switcheroo thing from Vincent D'Onofrio, and he escapes from the cops, he kills his friend Nelson in the escape attempt. And so while I'm watching this movie, I'm thinking, why did they get Tony Shalhoub to play this best friend? So afterwards, when I learned it was a 40-minute movie, and the guy dies 20 minutes in... That makes sense to me. For the life of me, was thinking maybe Tony Shalhoub, during this chase sequence, was going to come back as a robot or something. Or maybe he was going to be an alien like he was in Men in Black. Or something. Some reason to have Tony Shalhoub. To me, it's a known actor, at, and at this point, it makes no sense for him to do that. And I had my answer afterwards, but during the movie, I thought, this guy has to pop up again. He has to pop Because the same thing happened with Madeline Stowe. They use Madeline Stowe a little bit more, but I hear what you're saying. They have name actors. They have people that have worked before that are pretty good actors, and they're doing nothing with it. It's cameo stuff. And now, look, if this was a movie like the Muppet movie or something, where you have, like, Bob Hope come by and sell ice cream or something, <laughs> that's different. But these people had what seemed to be important parts not cameos, and it just seemed weird to me. Now, so Madeline Stowe is the wife, and we already told you later on in the movie she turns out to be a replicant. Throughout this movie, it seems to me that she's giving it away, that her character, as we find out at the end of the movie, had no idea she should be giving away in the first place because she had no idea she was supposed to be a replicant. You know what I mean? So why on earth would she choose to play the character that way is beyond me. Yeah, she does seem to be acting as if they're both undercover and that he's about to blow it. And I think it only makes sense if they both are unaware of the fact that they're imposters. I didn't predict like you. I can't say that I knew that the ending was coming and that she was going to be a replicant too. I just thought that she was misdirected and that maybe she was concerned that people were listening in on the phone because they're, they're not speaking to each other one-on-one. They're talking on the phone because she's at the hospital and he's running around wherever underground. Yeah, I thought, you know, she was concerned about people eavesdropping the, or something like that. I knew there was going to be a twist ending somewhere in here. I didn't suspect her. I actually thought D'Onofrio was going to end up being a replicant, and that was going to be the big twist, that the authority is actually uh, the subversive force that's going to destroy itself. But that didn't happen. That, that would have made me actually uh, maybe start to enjoy this. Well, you know what, where I got disappointed, where the movie I realized wasn't going to get better? We spend a lot of time with Gary Sinise trying to get a medical scan. Much like modern day, he can't get modern medicine to treat him. And if he can just get a heart scan, he can know whether there's a bomb in it or not. So they spend an inordinate amount of time with him in the underground force, extracting beepers and being 
you know, all of this stuff, finally getting to the hospital. And I'm thinking, okay, and now we're finally going to get to him meeting the chancellor because the whole idea of sending the replicant to Earth with a bomb inside of him is that he can go up to the supreme leader and blow her up. So obviously we have to have a scene in which the chancellor and him are going to be in the same room, and that'll be a big trigger as to whether he is or is not the imposter. But guess what? That never takes place. Even though we see the chancellor on a TV screen at the beginning of the movie, she never factors into the story again. We never have that moment. There's no twist on that moment. And I thought, wow, that is such an obvious way to surprise us. That would be be such an obvious give of where the story would go and we, we would learn new information. And they never go there. I said this before with this movie, but it doesn't pick up on any of its interesting threads. You never get that confrontation with the Chancellor and Gary Sinise's character. You have this whole uh, showdown with D'Onofrio's character and his boss, and there's this mention, how many innocent people did you kill before you like perfected this test to find replicants? And he's like, well, isn't one life worth uh, 10,000 people or whatever? And okay, oh, maybe we're going to get some interesting dialogue on witch hunts and, and that kind of thing. And this, That's my big problem with this film is that it, it starts to get interesting and then it does its darndest to not follow any of those threads yeah i remember that moment and i remember thinking yeah are they going to have something to measure the soul that's kind of cool if they have a device to look in the heart and see if a bomb's there why is he doing that rather than driving a giant drill through them and killing them that that just seems like a great way of killing innocent people without getting a good answer we actually didn't describe exactly how vincent d'onofrio Figure, finds the bomb inside. During the interrogation of Gary Sinise's character, he's tied up to a chair, and D'Onofrio explains the whole thing about the alien plot with replicants. He says he's hunted replicants before, and the way they find the heart has a bomb in it is they, put, they strap him to a chair, and this big giant drill thing goes in, and like a buzzsaw or like a weed whacker, actually, cuts open the chest. While the person is still conscious. Mm-hmm. Because he's a robot, it doesn't matter. He doesn't need any anesthesia or anything. You can pull out the explosive device before it can detonate. Now, Stuart, you make a fantastic point. If that's the way they find the bomb inside to prove he's a robot or not, you very well could kill humans that way. But if Gary Sneeze spends... The middle portion of this movie going to this hospital, trying to go to this hospital to find that full-body scanner, why isn't Vincent D'Onofrio using the full-body scanner to see if anyone's a robot or not? It's much more effective. And in the book, the reason why they don't do that is that they quickly whisk him off to the moon. Everything's happening on Earth, and they whisk him off to the moon to dismantle him. They don't have time to find out whether there's a bomb in him or not. They have to get him off the planet, and he's like, you got 10 minutes, and when we land, we're going to tear you to shreds. It's got much more of a comedic edge to it. You're just like, oh, my God, this is so horrible. It's hilarious. And that's how they handle that situation in the book. So do you want to talk about do we cover enough of McKay Pfeiffer and Gary Sinise's relationship at all or anything like that? Does it matter, honestly? No, uh, and that's the big problem with this movie for me is that's – and Brock, you could tell me if I'm right or not, but that seems like the, the filler, the 40 minutes, the hour of filler, whatever that they had to throw in here was this whole team-up uh, between the two of them to run around and look for drugs or whatever, and I don't care. I mean, it goes nowhere. There's no payoff. Mikel Pfeiffer doesn't jump in at the last minute at the end of the film to save them. It just ends. You know, it's I, like, okay, we got enough filler. Let's let's go back to our original cut. I think the only way that it could make sense 
and it this could have worked. I don't know. Is if you had instead of this enemy from Alpha Centauri, you had an underclass that was fighting the Chancellor, and that in the aftermath of maybe the Alpha Centauri battles, there was this schism between two factions on Earth, and the imposter, the alleged imposter, was coming from the underground rather than from outer space. If you had done that it would have given some credence to Kale and and we would have been intrigued with who he is and who his people are and what he wants to do with these drugs once he breaks into the hospital and steals them. All of that would have been a part of the story we were there to learn, but it isn't, and no one cares. Jacob, to answer your question, I might have given this away a little bit in the summary, but I'll be very specific here. So Vincent D'Onofrio interrogates Gary Sinise, and as he sees he's about to get cut open, he pretends he is indeed the robot, figures out a way to escape, runs out, kills his friend Nelson in the elevator by mistake, runs out of harm's way for a moment to an alley, calling his wife, telling her what's going on, and realizing on the video phone that she has already been contacted by the authorities that he might be this imposter robot. So at that moment, he tells her, meet me in Sutton Woods. Jump to them meeting at the end of the movie... In Sutton Woods. So you're absolutely right. The entire middle portion with the hospital thing isn't there. Ah. He immediately figures out that the Sutton Wood fire they dropped in the first 20, you know, the first scene happened because the spaceship crashed there. And that's where the imposter must be. The ship of the imposter might be. He figures it out that way because it makes more sense. It's the same day. Nothing else has happened. So you're absolutely right. It happens right there. So if you think about it just for a minute, the movie's first 20 minutes and the movie's last 20 minutes, not only does it fit in together plot-wise, everything fits together snugly. And that thing we talked about with the soul, that's just an idea as opposed to something that has time to be explored. That's something they throw out there for us, the audience, to think about. And in a 40-minute movie, that's fine. I I don't mind that in a 40-minute film. When you're going to waste 90-plus minutes of my time... I want to get a bit deep. Exactly. You acknowledge it, but you don't have to, th- to worry about it because that's not exactly the story they're telling. So what's really interesting is not only do you could tell that it fits tonally, but it fits with their acting. It fits with the lighting. It fits with the different kinds of film angles. In every way, it fits. So it totally is clear to me after watching the 40-minute movie that it was clearly those films, were sh- those scenes were shot together and they all got back together six months later or whatever to film those middle sections, the filler sections. But if they did do that, why didn't they match it not only with the plot threads and things, but with the angles, with the lighting, with the mood? W- wh- why couldn't they figure out a way to make the whole movie really feel like one movie as opposed to two separate ones which clearly we all had suspicions for maybe they figured they already sunk a bunch of money into this 40 minute version they wanted to get some kind of payback for it so let's add some filler and do it as cheap as possible i mean that that's my thinking as i see this original cut here it's like the whole different director was there it wasn't like it was the same guy the same creative team which doesn't make any sense to me either and so i don't want to harp too much on the differences to the two things we're not reviewing the 40 minute movie here we're reviewing the 90 minute one but it is completely apparent where it starts and where it ends. And I think going with your point, Brock, is one of the big problems for me with this film was Gary Sinise. And we talked a little bit about him. You know, he's a great character actor, great supporting actor. But again, this is a chase movie. And I think there's two main elements to a chase movie. One, is there some purpose to the chase? Is he finding out clues? Is something happening during the chase? The second thing, do I care about this protagonist? Do I care if he gets away, if he succeeds? 
And in a 40-minute version, again, it's quicker. It's a different kind of story. I didn't care about Gary Sinise here. They didn't do enough in that first, you know, 15 minutes where they brought up the whole dilemma, is he a replicant or not? I just didn't care about him. I didn't care if he was a robot or a human or if he blew anyone up. I mean, how did that work for you guys? No, I didn't care. I didn't care about Gary Sinise. I think I would have cared about the scenario that he was in. And the only difference is it stretched out too long. Short movie, you just care whether this guy is a a bomb or not, basically. Long movie, we spend way too much time with him. We need to get to know him. We need to get to know how he works. They try flashbacks with him and his dad and rockets and just real overly sentimental stuff, like as if that's going to make me care about him. No, it's too bad that they could not have figured out a way to make the central question Am I a robot or not? Am I a weapon or am I an innocent? Really play out well. So let's talk about the ending. I thought they gave away that Madeline Stowe was the replicant the entire time. And after I watched the full movie, I read the story, and the wife isn't really in it. Nelson has a bigger part, the best friend. Spencer is the only bomb in the story. They threw in the wife in this movie version as a, a first ending, and then this Gary Sinise blowing up is the second ending, I saw her being a replicant coming the entire time. I did not see him actually being a replicant at all in this movie. I, I, I didn't think that was where the movie was going. The fact that they actually have him blow up at the end of the movie was quite surprising to me, and I wish it had a bigger impact on me, but at that point I was bored out of my mind. I didn't care. Well, there's no impact to the bomb going off. I mean, it would have been a downbeat ending if he'd blown up and then the world blew up, which is pretty much how the story ends. A whole planet exploded because Spencer Olin was triggered to say, oh my God, if that's Olin, then I must be boom. Just kind of blew up a force that was already on fire for a week. Well, whoop-de-doo. I, I totally agree, Stuart. That was my problem. If I cared about D'Onofrio, maybe I would have cared about the bomb going off and him dying with some really, really bad special effects. But I don't care. They Oh, so the uh, forest got burned up twice. Okay. Yeah. I mean, have the Alpha Centauri's ma- got a foothold? No, they, they haven't progressed any further in the war. The humans, the Earthlings, they don't aren't progress any further in the war. You get to the end of this film, and it's exactly where you began. It's a cheap twist because... I don't even understand how this works. If the replicants don't know that they are replicants, they must at least know that they flew down in a ship, opened it up, and killed people that look just like them, right? Like, how did they miss that? Like, at what point is that memory wiped? We don't really know. It's just one of those twist endings that, that Hollywood does too often to surprise you just for the sake of a surprise. And to me, if it doesn't make sense, if it doesn't have payoff, if there's not anything connected to it other than we just pulled the rug out from under you and now you're laying on the ground, well, ouch, that hurt. That wasn't fun at all. And I never understood how that bomb worked anyway. They, the whole time they talk about we got to keep him away from the Chancellor because that's when he gets within a certain distance of her, that's when it'll go off. And at the end, the Chancellor's not around, and it still goes off. The movie cheated. The book, it's very clear that he's going to say a phrase that he does not know, and that's what's going to trigger the bomb. And the phrase is him saying out loud, oh, my God, if that's Olam, I must be. You know, it's the realization that he is the bomb that sets off the bomb. But in this movie, yeah, he's, he's there specifically to kill the global leader of Earth, And he doesn't do it, but he still goes off. 
Well, congratulations, Alpha Centauri. You burned a forest twice. So, Stuart, Jacob, do you recommend Imposter? Stuart. I don't recommend Imposter. Um, <laughs> you know, it's not like it's awful. It's almost worse by being so mediocre and meandering. It asks too much of my time and then gives me so little. And I think there's a good story here. I think that's the sad part is rather than feeling bleh, I feel like they really could have pulled something out of this that would have been fun, light, more like the, in the spirit of the story. I'm picturing something like Truman Show era Jim Carrey. You know, you get a guy who's instantly likable and funny, and then you put him in this crazy situation where he has to ask who he really is and what he's really about. That would have been a really fun movie. But you put Gary Sinise, who acts and looks like a robot, in a story that goes all over the place. I'm waiting for the bomb to go off. And sadly, it takes 90 minutes to do so. Jacob. Look, I think all of us with now playing, we all have that certain movie, which is the low point for us. Arnie had The Aviator. I think for you, Stuart, it was Screamers. For me, Impostor is the low point. Wow. I would watch... I would watch the next Karate Kid before I watch this again. I would watch <laughs> Karate Kid 3 before I watch this again. I'll go watch that Ralph Macchio mac and cheese monologue over and over before I watch Impostor again. I would watch all the Saw movies before I watched Impostor again. This is the most hated movie I have done for now playing. It's just boring and goes mm. nowhere. It, it has no grasp of what storytelling is. So much filler. I didn't care about any of the characters. I didn't care about the story. And maybe someday when they do a, a good version of this, I would be totally into it. I'm not against a remake of Im Impostor. But this movie, I am so against. Go. It's easy to say, well, there's a really good 40-minute movie in there. That's not what I watched. I had to watch a 90-minute-plus movie. And it is bad. It's boring. There's no point to it. So, no, I don't recommend Impostor. Yeah, I'm getting that from you. All right. <laughs> and uh, I do not recommend this movie at all. This, this movie is boring, dull, pointless. And it's unfortunate because the source material it's based on is quite an entertaining story. So I do not recommend Imposter. But I do recommend the 40-minute version, the original version they made before they expanded it into a 90-minute version. I'm lucky enough to have seen it on the DVD copy I got. I got it from Netflix. So if you're interested in that, Rent it and just watch the 40 minutes and turn it over quickly back to Netflix. I highly recommend the 40-minute version. The entire thing works. It's seamless. The acting is good. The mood is good. You can see why the executives, after seeing this or seeing the dailies of it, wanted to make this into a feature film. And unfortunately, what they executed was not good. I wish you they know, would have executed this movie. <laughs> I think I would like to see that 40-minute version, but as soon as I can forget everything about this movie. I think I couldn't appreciate it if I watched it right now because all of the other stuff would be coming up for me. But the moment, five years from now, it shouldn't actually take that long for me to forget Imposter. But <laughs> when I do, maybe I will give the 40-minute version a, a crack. But they failed because the feature-length version makes me not want to see it. Well, yeah, but then again... The 40-minute version on, this, on the DVD was just a treat. We're not even supposed to know it exists, really. You know, it, it's nice that they included it there, but... Uh, I think the feature is the imposter, though, and the 41 <laughs> is the real one. Nice, nice. All right, so if you enjoy this episode of our Philip K. Dick retrospective series, please go to our website at www.nowplayingpodcast.com. 
and download the other episodes in this series. And you can also find our retrospective series on Saw. You can find our episodes of Star Trek and Terminator, Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, which, by the way, Jacob, features my least favorite movie we've ever watched in these series, which would be Friday the 13th Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan. Download that podcast and see what I'm talking about. You can also go to our forums. You can find a link to that on our homepage, where you can discuss this episode and all the other episodes of Now Playing with listeners like yourself. And you can become a fan of us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter. And if you're downloading us from iTunes, please take the time, if you like us, to leave us a positive review there so other people like yourself can find us and enjoy the fun as well. And readers, don't forget about books and nachos. I'll be talking about the original short stories. We won't be discussing the movies with it. Just what's on the written word. Just what Philip K. Dick wrote. And that's over there, booksandnachos.com. All right. So we're going to reconvene, the three of us, when we talk about Minority Report. I just got to say, thank God, no more replicants or robots or any of that. Finally, we're going to move on to something different. Although, are we sure Tom Cruise isn't a robot? <laughs> he certainly we're runs like one. We're talking about in the fictional universe, not in real life. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll be reconvening when we talk about that movie, Minority Report. Talk to you then. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's Philip K. Dick Retrospective Series. The best mindfuck yet. You can find the other episodes of the Philip K. Dick Retrospective Series at nowplayingpodcast.com in the archive section, as well as our reviews of other classic movie series including Predator, Terminator, Star Trek, Rambo, The Karate Kid, A Nightmare on Elm Street, and many more. No doubt the precogs have already seen this. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a positive review on iTunes. A link to our iTunes feed can be found at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. You can also support Now Playing by making a donation using the donate button at the bottom of our homepage. Your donations help keep Now Playing on the air. We hope you enjoyed the ride! You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post movie mini-reviews, as well as announcements of new episodes. Links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Now Playing presents the Philip K. Dick Retrospective Series Podcasts are edited by Jay. I've seen every possible ending here. None of them are good for you. The films discussed in this series are the intellectual property of their respective trademark holders, and no infringement is intended. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinions of Venganza Media Incorporated. The precogs are never wrong, but occasionally they do disagree. Now playing is copyright and trademark Venganza Media Incorporated, 2011, all rights reserved. As a sex object, you can't beat Gary Sinise, but as an actor, eh, he leaves things to be desired. (laughs) I don't think I've ever heard that sentence muttered before. Um, I don't think Gary Sinise has either. Ouch. Gary Sinise. Sorry, Sinise. Yes, please please keep listening. We promise we'll stop. Give us a positive review on iTunes. (laughs) (laughs) Madeline Stowe's wife. Madeline Stowe's wife. No. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't see that. That must be the director's cut. (laughs) That is the Skidamax version. Well, congratulations, Office Centauri. You burned a force twice. (laughs) Al Gore is very angry with you.